Thanks for joining us. I'm Steve Shu, And I'm Corey Washington, and we're your hosts for Manifold. Our guest today is Sebastian Younger. Sebastian was a war correspondent for 15 years and has covered war for over 25. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The National Review. He's the author of five books, The Perfect Storm, A Death in Belmont, which won the 2007 Penn Winship Award, Fire, War, and Tribe. His documentary work includes the trilogy Restrepo, Korengal, and The Last Patrol about war and its effects on soldiers. Restrepo won the Grand Jury Prize for Domestic Documentary at the 2010 Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2011. His 2017 documentary, Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS, documents the early years of the Syrian conflict and the origins of ISIS from the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. He's currently working on a documentary on Mexico for National Geographic Television due out in 2020. Welcome to Manifold, Sebastian. Thank you. I would like to begin with Syria, uh, ISIS and the Kurds, the subjects of hell on earth. Last month, uh, President Trump announced the U.S. was pulling troops out of northern Syria, troops that were there in part to protect Kurdish civilians and fighters from Turkey. Many of our listeners might not know a good deal about the Kurds of northern Syria. Can you tell us something about the situation on the ground that this community faced? I've never worked there. I've always wanted to go to Kurdistan, and, and, I, ne- and I never got there. So I, what I know is from what I read in the paper and talking to people, but the Kurdish people uh, have never had their own autonomous country. Uh, they're a population that's spread over several countries, all of them autocratic. Uh, and they have worked very hard to establish a pretty enlightened egalitarian society. Women in, many women in leadership roles and uh, female generals. I mean, in the heart of the Arab world, women's rights are quite prominent in Kurdistan. And I think that was, has been quite inspiring to American, Americans who have volunteered to fight over there, and, and as well as American forces that are over there. Um, I can't claim to know what our President Trump was thinking uh, in his decision to pull American forces out of that area, but but clearly his own military has said that the consequences in human terms, in military terms, and in strategic terms, the consequences have been uh, very, very severe and arguably catastrophic. I thought they quickly formed an alliance with the Syrian government, and so there actually hasn't been a genocide or even large-scale Turkish invasion of that area. I mean, you don't have to have a a genocide for uh, the consequences to be catastrophic. Our biggest rival in the world, uh, arguably, is Russia. They now have taken over American military bases. They own that that territory now. Um, We are no longer there. Uh, There's... There's a, I mean, listen, I'm not a, I'm not a general, right? I'm just, I'm just speaking as a news consumer. Uh, but it seems like we've lost a piece of the global chessboard to arguably a dangerous rival. As you underscore in Hell on Earth, uh, in destroying ISIS, the Kurds uh, bore the brunt of the suffering. We basically carried in, carried airstrikes, and the Kurds were the ground forces. So I think there's a sense in which, among many, that essentially we owe them something. And is this a sentiment you found, perhaps, among soldiers that you've talked to? I mean, you, all countries owe their allies loyalty. Uh, I'm not sure we owe the Kurds something as a people, 
but when you form strategic alliances with other groups, th th their usefulness disappears if they get the sense that you don't feel a sense of obligation to them as well. So I, I, don't, I think O is the wrong word, but certainly there's a um, probably a strategic loss in introducing the idea that a, 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 an alliance with the United States is um, something that can disappear overnight. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I, in my first awareness of the Kurds came back in the late 80s, uh, and this was paying attention to Iraq and the Anfal campaign against them that Saddam carried out. And I think, like, as you mentioned, like a, many, a, lot, of many, a lot of liberals, you have the sense for, due to their statelessness, due to them being, uh, having developed a light in society, due to the targeting of chemical weapons, that they're essentially a population that one should care about and protect. So, Corey, I just want to question you on that. Are you for or against the Iraq War? So it's interesting. Uh, was it a huge geopolitical blunder by the United States? And if so, liberating the Kurds, you know, maybe wasn't worth well, invading note, Iraq. Note that the Kurds actually had some autonomy pretty early on. You know, we basically uh, introduced a, uh, you know, a no-fly zone which protected the Kurds. But it's complicated, right? I think, and Sebastian gets into this in an article in Vanity Fair, right? There's a question of humanitarian intervention. And in some cases, it seems to work. In some cases, it doesn't. In Iraq, it looks like it was a largely mistake. But but there are other cases in which I think it's been successful. But we you can you can constantly say if we were not to intervene in this part of the world, right? We all, a lot of people would suffer. So you can just constantly make cases across all parts of the world that we should be intervening. But of course, then you have to be realistic about what our resources are and what our actual larger geopolitical goals are. So I think it's a very false calculus just to say people are suffering here. Americans have to go there and die now. Sebastian? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think that it's either or. I mean, there are clearly situations where people were dying in unconscionable numbers. Uh, for example, World War II, when American entry into that war, arguably in the, in the immediate term and in the long term, I think probably spared humanity quite a bit of suffering. Um, at a smaller scale in Bosnia, that Bosnia was my first war. Um, the NATO intervention in Bosnia in 1995 brought a halt to a um, th three years of warfare, arguably of genocide, certainly of ethnic cleansing, um, with a two-week bombing campaign that where no NATO lives were lost. There was a minimum of civilian casualties. Uh, it was the right thing to do. Uh, strategically and in humanitarian grounds. Rwanda, was a, there was a chance lost there. I think it would have been very easy for a Western military to intervene in Rwanda the way the French did in Mali a few years ago and bring a stop to a war that was incredibly costly and, and horrifying to anyone who was paying attention. And extraordinarily low tech, right? People were killed over months with effectively machetes, right? I think with you know a sure. few Marines, you could have stopped that genocide. I don't, I don't think we, I think it's a straw man to say that there are never uh, good cases of U.S. intervention. I think the question is, by and large, is the U.S. intervening too much in the outside world? Uh, not enough. I think Trump ran on a platform of saying that he wanted to reduce U.S. entanglements abroad. That's a very traditional old stance among certain aspects of our political uh, establishment. Um, but of course, he's taken the heat from the military industrial complex and war hawks and neocons and all, all the people that want to keep us involved in everything. I, I, just to jump in, I, the Iraq war was not a humanitarian intervention. I mean, let's not confuse Bosnia 
with 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 uh, President Bush's escapades in Iraq. They're they're really different things. But the case is often made as you as you beat the drums for war, then you can immediately uh, invoke a certain subpopulation of people that are suffering. They would be better off if we got rid of Hussein, um, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can hear the same thing about Iran right now. I mean, there are certain parts of the establishment that want to go to war with Iran. I think I think Trump just kicked out Bolton, who would love to go to war with 100 countries tomorrow if, if we let him. I, I think you're conflating two different things. I mean, the humanitarian intervention that France did in Mali, that, the, that NATO did in Bosnia, that could have happened in Rwanda, are very, very different from a ginned up war in Iraq over a false issue of, of WMD. I mean, I mean, no one was saying that Iraq was a humanitarian intervention. Even President Bush wasn't cynical enough to say that. So, I mean, I think you do have to keep those in separate Yeah, I wasn't battles. trying to make an equivalence between those things. I think I was talking more about the Kurds. So here's a sympathetic population that maybe we could help, but very complicated region, a lot of forces at play, Turkey, Iran, uh, Syria, the Russians. Uh, what at what th- price threshold is it worth helping these people? That I think that's the more difficult question. Well, no, the northern Syria was relatively quiet at that stage. We were not invading a new country. We had troops already there. We were not taking huge numbers of casualties. Uh, northern Iraq, uh, where we had a no-fly zone, was fairly stable. So I don't think you can ar- again conflate humanitarian intervention uh, with the decision to pull out troops of northern Syria. They're really different issues, and, left, and liberals argued for it, but that wasn't Bush's motivation. And also, the, the, the ISIS is a real threat to the world. They've killed a lot of people. And the, the, the combination of American forces with air power and our, just our, our tactical wizard, wizardry on the ground with local forces like the Kurds were extremely effective in combating ISIS. And, and that collaboration resulted in the collapse of the, quote, caliphate which is an entirely good thing for the world. So, so it's, it, again, it's not, I don't think anyone thinks America was there for humanitarian reasons for the Kurds. I think that was a, um, yeah, you know, a secondary outcome that a lot of people applauded, but really we were there to contain ISIS. And I think that was a job that, that had to be done. I, I have a, just to back up a little bit, uh, maybe Sebastian, you can answer this question because uh, I've been confused for years about ISIS. So in the late Obama administration, the media was full of stories about how ISIS was our number one enemy, uh, our, our biggest security threat, all the while, uh, you know, China, the Chinese economy is hollowing us out and building much more advanced weapons, et cetera, et cetera. But, but attention was focused on ISIS. And so as a dutiful reader, I would look on a map and say, wait a minute, this is a landlocked place. Uh, we control, we have total air superiority over this region. We totally control the periphery of this region. How exactly are these guys surviving unless there's some kind of, you know, deeper issue going on here, which allows them to survive? So I never understood the story of ISIS, and I was totally unsurprised that once Trump took power, he would be able to completely eliminate ISIS very quickly, which is what happened. I'm not sure what you're asking. How were they able to survive? If the Obama administration had been serious about eliminating ISIS years ago, it seems to me they could have done it. I think that perhaps there were other... Uh, reasons they weren't completely eliminated. For example, they might have been instrumental in uh, uh, an effort to uh, replace Assad in Syria. Well, I mean, my understanding is that ISIS was started by ex-military officers from Saddam Hussein's regime that created a really radical jihad in Iraq in the vacuum left by the pullout of American forces conducted by Obama. 
And so ISIS really started to gain steam at the very end of Obama's presidency and was really only stopped when uh, American forces and Kurdish forces were able to collaborate on the ground uh, along with American air power and defeat them. And, and so that I don't think ISIS was ever a, a threat to mainland America in the sense of like invading it. I mean, of course, that's a silly idea. But the their actions on the grounds in the Middle East were extremely dangerous to people and horrifying to people who live there. And of course, the they inspire they haven't had an ideology that inspired lone wolf attackers in Paris, in the United States, in Belgium, in Denmark. I mean, I, try, I mean, in, in Holland rather. I'm trying to remember. It's a few years ago, but their their ideology spawned some absolutely horrific attacks against civilians all over the world. So, the collapse of the caliphate, I think, just in just in terms of human welfare and human dignity is, was probably a good thing. And I don't think it could have been achieved without some kind of action by the West along with the Kurds. And I think there's some reason to believe that actually uh, Assad saw ISIS as an advantage to him, right? Many of these people were in Syrian jails and were released because having ISIS out there really muddied the waters as to who his opposition was. And he could claim the opposition is these terrorists rather than these more moderate op opponent figures. So I, I, I just don't, to me, that few-year history is very unclear what was going on because it seemed obvious we could crush these guys if we wanted to, which Trump accomplished relatively quickly. And uh, But it, it was strange that so much attention was focused on these people, people in orange jumpsuits having their heads sawed off with kabar knives. You know, and 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 it, if you look on the map, they looked like an extremely vulnerable entity that we could take out immediately, but we didn't do it. And so I was very surprised by that. You can't defeat anyone with air power. It doesn't work. I mean, if it worked, well, if they can't get food, water, and oil, and money, then uh, you know they are also landlocked and no, surrounded. No, they got money. See, they got money by controlling areas and taxing people. Where, right. But if you could cut off that entire region, if you wanted, cut off the entire Middle East. It's an economy, right? No, no, no. The whole region that was occupied by the caliphate. No, no, you couldn't. How could you do that? It was a completely landlocked, surrounded by ostensibly hostile forces region. The the cities that were controlled by ISIS. You can't cut off anyone with air power. It doesn't work. I mean, the Russians would have won in Afghanistan. They were possible. The Americans would have won. This is not Afghanistan. This is the desert. Yeah, so is Afghanistan. I mean, I mean, air power just just does not. It's not magic. It doesn't do that. And it's across states, Steve. Right? It's it's across Iraq and Syria. States that have economies, right? So you can get money by right. taxing so, businesses. So, there. for example, one of the things that was widely discussed was whether Turkey was allowing oil to come in and out of that region, and what exactly were the delicate geopolitical reasons why that was being allowed. Um, so I'm saying I, I think the whole situation is quite complicated and not very well understood. So I'd, I'd like to talk about Afghanistan um, because it's a war that's, that you spent an enormous amount of time covering. You know, of all the wars I think we were in, it was thought to be, I think, the most justified. And it was in many ways, I think perhaps historical reasons, uh, thought to be perhaps the most unwinnable. You've got a passage in war where you write about Captain Dan Carney. And I just want to quote this to you because it really struck me. Uh, as he's turning around the corner in a road, hitting a wall of Taliban firepower, I was blown away by the insurgents' ability to continue fighting despite everything American had thrown at them. From that point on, I knew uh, it was, number one, a different enemy than I'd fought in Iraq. And at number two, the train offered some kind of advantage I'd never seen or heard about in my entire life. So I think there was a sense of soldiers that this was is a really different kind of conflict. 
and uh, one that would be extremely difficult. Now, over the years, uh, we're kind of at a stalemate now, and I'd just be curious about what you know, what soldiers you've talked to have a sense about the war looking back, uh, given that we haven't won it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that many soldiers that, I, I mean, I don't really talk to them about that stuff, but the sense that I get is, um, even when I was over there, the, uh, sorry, it's New York City in the background. <laughs> um, the, um, the sense that I got was that Iraq was the questionable war. I mean, even among, you know, grunts in the U.S. military, they sort of had the sense that, like, all right, there was no WMD in Iraq. What exactly were we doing there? I mean, everyone had a great time and everything, but seriously, like, what were we doing there? And, and Afghanistan was not questioned because there was such a direct link between Afghanistan and 9-11, unless you believe these stupid conspiracy theories. But, but, but the, the, the soldiers I was with, they, they sort of understood that there was a moral, legal, and a strategic rationale for going to Afghanistan after 9-11. And I, I don't know how they see it now. I mean, clearly the reason we went to Afghanistan, to me, was twofold. I mean, one was to kill and capture the Al-Qaeda leadership, which happened, uh, and probably could not have happened had we just flown SEAL teams out of Northern Virginia. I mean, the other was to sort of stabilize that country and normalize it so that it was not the kind of rogue state that a group like Al-Qaeda could find safe haven in and and plan and conduct attacks against the West. I mean, that, that was the sort of twofold strategy as far as I saw it. I mean, for me, when you say the war in Afghanistan, I, I don't necessarily picture American soldiers. I mean, I was there in 1996 uh, when the Taliban took over, a despicable regime. I was there in 2000 with Massoud while he was fighting the Taliban. I mean, when you say the war in Afghanistan, to me, that includes the Soviet invasion, includes 10 years of absolutely ghastly civil war, and then the relatively peaceful era that started with NATO involvement in that country. And by peaceful, I mean that civilian casualty rate plummeted when NATO forces got there uh, because the Civil War effectively stopped and the Taliban reoriented their firepower on Americans, American soldiers. So to me, when you say the war in Afghanistan, it could be any one of those three things. American soldiers are focused on the last one, of course. Um, I think America, I think Afghanistan has a has a fighting chance of being a relatively stable country that brings the war to an end. I hope they do for their sake and our sake. Um, but of course, I can't see the future. I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's it is. I think for I think do many Americans, uh, including myself, probably do see through the lens of just being U.S. soldiers. Uh, uh, it it worked there, and you're right. It's had an incredibly long history, and perhaps we can't expect to change it all that much. Um, but you just spent an uh, enormous amount of time there with men in that situation, and they were fighting for something. And often it seemed like, from your description of it, they're often f fighting for their own brothers and their own people in combat and arms without seeing a much larger purpose in life. And uh, and that seems to forge incredible uh, cohesion, but it's very different, I think, from many, how many Americans view that war as fighting for removing the Taliban, creating some sort of stability. Uh, and this always struck me as kind of a, a it's interesting gap. Maybe it's typical of wars, but it struck me as a very interesting gap between what we kind of saw as the function of the war and what actually motivated men on the ground. Yeah, I mean, there's different levels to the sort of decisions that go into joining the military and fighting. And and I mean, maybe you know, maybe you go to college because you have this idea of a career in your mind. But in the night before a test, you're cramming for the test because you want to pass the test, right? So in combat. The thing that motivates you to act the way soldiers do in combat 
those those causes are are, are completely proximal, right? They're, they're your own safety, the safety of your brothers, like they, that that's all you're thinking about. It's all you should be thinking about. It's all you need to think about to fight effectively. Um, why would a, a young man or a young woman join the U.S. military in the first place? Any number of reasons. Um, one of them might be a kind of a sense of patriotism. One of them might be in the days after 9/11, a sense that we need to strike the enemy after they struck us. I mean, I, you know, I, you know what? I mean, a lot of guys out there. It was all men in the platoon that I was with, and. Um, uh, that beeping is from the streets of New York, if that's what you're wondering about. So the soldiers that I was with, it was all men out there. It was combat infantry. It's all male. Uh, and, you know, that a lot of them joined because their fathers had fought in Vietnam and their grandfathers in World War II. And honestly, they saw themselves as badasses and they wanted to know what it was like to be in combat. I mean, straight up, they wanted to experience combat. And when they found out they're going to, they were supposed to go to Iraq in 07, and when they found out they're going to Afghanistan, they thought, oh, God, there's not going to be any fighting. Like, we're going to have to sit around and drink tea with elders all year. They were wrong. But that was their fear, was that they were going to have a 15-month deployment where they did absolutely nothing at all. And when they got there and there was a lot of combat, it was disturbing and hard and everything else. But it was also well in keeping with their, their identity, their vision of themselves, and what they felt they trained for. So, I, you know, like what motivates people to do that? it's very, very complex. And a lot of it has to do with a kind of like vision, their own particular vision, cultural vision of manhood, what it means to be a man. Could you comment on what aspects of this experience of combat is timeless and universal? So, you know, would have been the same for people in Vietnam or in uh, Normandy as you observed in Afghanistan versus what's especially unique about the modern experience that uh, these soldiers went through? Um. I mean, on a material level, there's different weapons, different technologies. They, I mean, at the outpost I was at, there was no communication with the outside world, but, but at the cop, at the company headquarters, you could actually get on the phone and talk to your girlfriend, you know, which is obviously uh, recent uh, in the military experience. But, you know, at a more fundamental human level, I think it's completely universal, the, the, the sort of bond, the bond between combatants, the vilifying of the enemy, the dehumanizing of the enemy, the incredible grief and sorrow at losing your brothers, the sense of guilt that someone who caught a bullet in the forehead, that happened somehow, it was your fault that that happened. That's obviously ridiculous, but but it feels that way. The uh, sense of meaningfulness, like the sense of being needed by others, uh, that's, I mean, you can see elements of that if you read the Iliad. You, I mean, it's just a universal part of, of combat and and um, it was very interesting to see those ancient themes um, in the in the lives of of modern American boys, you know, who grew up, you know, grew up playing video games and you know whatever. Like, but there it is, it's as ancient as can be. This is actually a real big theme of your last book, Tribe. Um, what happens to these men after they leave the military? And I guess I asked a similar question. You talk about speaking with the men, and often a number of them express desire to go back. Uh, and, and there's issues about you're trying to find meaning after war. Um, is this, again, something you think is utterly universal, or is there something particular about what happened after Afghanistan to the experience of people leaving and then searching for meaning? Well, you know, we're, we're humans are social primates. We are wired to uh, belong to groups and to function in small groups. In fact, we cannot survive without that. I mean, you put a human in nature they die immediately. 
humans survive because they they function in groups and uh, in fact they thrive and so we get our emotional safety in the, from the same place that we get our physical safety from the from the proximity of others and you know one of the ironies of modern society is that we're wealthy enough for you know example a lot of middle class families and up you know each child has their own bedroom that's insane right i mean in certain in terms of human history in the history of our species it was very very recently that that broad swaths of the society were wealthy enough to give every child their own room right and so of course that's great they have autonomy they can listen to whatever music they they want to without their siblings complaining blah 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 but there's a there's a real downside to it right and, and which is that you lose this sense of communal living, this sense of connection. When, when people sleep in groups, sort of shoulder to shoulder, they feel safer. And if you don't believe me, try going camping by yourself. Try to fall asleep in the mountains, like in a sleeping bag, all alone, under the starry sky. You will not sleep very well, not because you're cold, not because the ground is hard or whatever, but because you know that when you're asleep, you are incredibly vulnerable. And if you're in a group of 30 guys, and everyone's got an got an M4 lying by them. You are not vulnerable. And I got to say, I slept better out at out at Restrepo, surrounded by all those guys, than I've ever slept camping by myself in the woods of New England, even though I was far less safe out there. And so, if you just think about humans in those terms, in those tribal terms, that that's what we that's what infants need, um, that's what adults need. Then you take people. And you put them in combat in situations like Restrepo, where they are very, very close together for a year. They're depending on each other for their, for their lives and for their emotional safety. And then you pick them up and you bring them back home and you drop them down in American society. And suddenly everyone's in their own bedroom with the air conditioning on watching TV. There are advantages to that. But the downside is this profound alienation. Um, and you don't have to be a soldier to experience that. You could, the, one quarter of Peace Corps volunteers struggle with significant depression after they come back from two years overseas to American society. One quarter, which incidentally is just about the rate of psychological struggle that you find in, in American soldiers that have come back and veterans that have come back regardless of whether they're in combat or not. I mean, one of the interesting things to me is that people struggle almost as much when they come home from tours of duty, whether they're in a combat unit or not. I mean, only about 10% of the U.S. military is actually engaged in combat. But an enormous number of people struggle with the re-entry. To me, that is a symptom. Uh, that's a sort of evidence of this fact that we really, once we get exposed to being around people, um, we, we, we have a very hard time giving it up, and then we're depressed when it happens. Have you examined other countries to see how they actually uh, accept their veterans back? Because it's you pretty well know, at least it's the general sense is American society is a lot more individualistic than perhaps some African societies or Middle Eastern societies. So you'd expect... The other countries have a better time, would be much better at basically easing the way for their veterans back into society and so lower rates of depression. Yeah, I mean, you know, in most of the world, people sleep collectively in, in, in rooms of extended families and infants are sleep with their parents and people take their meals together. And, you know, I was just in Liberia and, you know, it's too poor for people to have phones. You don't see kids walking around staring at their stupid iPhone, you know. I mean, they're playing together, you know, whatever. It's a poor country, but and there are things, there are terrible things that come with poverty. But one of the good things is that you don't have all this awful technology that's distracting everybody. And um, and by the way, I do not have one of those phones. I have a flip phone in case you were going to pounce with the question. Uh, and 
Um, so, I, I mean, this is anecdotal. I haven't studied this. Uh, it wasn't in my purview when I wrote Tribe, but, but anecdotally, I've heard that, um, that Afghan combatants and Iraqi combatants really do not know what American soldiers are talking about when they talk about PTSD. Um, they just, it's just a puzzler to them. Like what, you know, they go home to their villages or their communities or whatever, and you go back with a certain amount of trauma, but trauma, I mean, we're, we're wired to, as a species, we're wired to survive. I mean, if trauma was psychologically incapacitating to people for their lifetime, the human race wouldn't exist, right? We evolved in, in an environment that was um, very dangerous and traumatizing, both for predators and from rival human groups. And if an incident of trauma paralyzed people psychologically, we would have starved, right? And, and so, so the, 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 the question is not, are you traumatized by combat? But how long does your trauma last? Uh, and, and there's every indication that people are traumatized in groups. And if they have to heal by themselves, they have a hard time healing. So I think what you get with, Af with Afghan fighters and Iraqi fighters and people all over the world is that when they fight, they come back to a community with other fighters that they were with and that that healing process is much, much easier than it is in the suburbs of America. So when, when would you say in the West we started uh, having PTSD? World War I, Civil War prior to that? Oh, I know. A trauma reaction is, is, has always been with us, of course. I mean, you can see it in other animals as well. It's not just humans. But in terms of returning to an environment where you're sort of isolated and you don't have a brotherhood that you can rely on to make sense of what you just went through? Well, you know, I'll put it this way. I mean, it's not, there isn't a bright line. I think society has been changing continually. Western society has been continu changing continually for the last few hundred years, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, probably. But just as an example, uh, my wife is the the youngest of twelve. She was her her dad was quite quite old when when she was born. Uh, he fought in World War II, um, the whole deal from North Africa to Sicily, Italy, right through France on foot. He was a, a lieutenant and a captain in an infantry unit. Um, imagine what he saw, right? And he came back, uh, both physically and I'm sure psychologically wounded. I think he probably suffered far more trauma than most American soldiers have in the last 19, 18 years of warfare, these current wars. And he came back to his neighborhood in the Midwest where all six of his brothers from his family, blood brothers, had all served and they all lived within a few blocks of him, right? And most of the men in that neighborhood, related to him or not, had also served, right? American society is more and more mobile, and and I don't think that's conceivable anymore. I, I think it would be quite hard to find someone who had that experience. Did that help him come back, re-enter society and recover from his trauma and, and be able to function as eventually the mayor of his town and the president of a community bank where he helped the community enormously for the rest of his life? I'm sure it helped him. Absolutely. Our society, unfortunately, is not heading in that direction. It's heading in the other direction. And I think you see it in the, the rates of long-term PTSD, the rates of addiction, the rates of depression, of suicide. All of them are sky high in, in a country that boasts the largest economy in the world, one of the highest uh, standards of living in the world, the most powerful Navy, the most everything. And, and yet, psychologically, we're in pieces. You know, if you look at rates of other kinds of psychiatric, dise psychiatric diseases, not related to war, simply anxiety, 
they're like an order of magnitude higher than in other countries. I think I was looking at the rate of anxiety disorders a little while ago. In Nigeria, it's 0.2%. And I was just in Nigeria over the summer. And it's very interesting because it, it's a it's a middle-income com- country. People have cell phones. But what's clear is that the degree of social connectivity among people is just much, much greater than it is in the United States. Um, you're constantly surrounded by people, and, and there are these connections you can't see. And some of them may seem to Americans onerous. One discussion I had with people there was how much, and these are pretty well-off people, how much of your money goes to support family members economically. And they're just deep financial ties. People give money to family members. Family members are constantly visiting. There's a sense which you're always around people. And so I think it, it creates a kind of connectivity that may not be visible, but it's really, uh, and Americans may find economically, you know, distasteful because you can't get rich because so much of your money goes to other people. But yet there's incredible benefits to it uh, uh, psychologically. I was in Armenia over the summer, and I was kind of shocked to learn from some medical doctors and university professors that so this, the state doesn't have a well-functioning healthcare system, and uh, none of them have private healthcare insurance. So they're essentially all uninsured. And when I said, uh, how does that make you feel? And they said, well, we rely on our families. So if something bad happens to me and I need a, a procedure, and then we'll get the money from my extended family. So yeah, it's a very different setup. Yeah, what I would say is that, you know, Armenia, I've never been there. Uh, certainly, uh, Nigeria, I have been there. Those are um, less complex, less modern societies in America. I mean, you have, you know, 400 and some million people, whatever it is in this country. It's a modern society where that community fabric has been worn away in many places, uh, where people's children get up and move to the West Coast or the East Coast or whatever. I mean, one of the great things about this society is that it's so mobile and that a young person can just decide to make their life anywhere in whatever way they want. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? But there's a loss there, right? And, and that there's the loss of community fabric. So if you have a country like this, with all of its great blessings, you might need some sort of institutional care to step in where extended family and community might otherwise do the job in other kinds of societies. Years ago, a friend uh, from Sweden once said that Americans talk to their psychiatrists when they should be talking to their friends. And uh, it's uh, it's something I've seen. I think you mentioned this in Tribe. I don't know if it's your current wife or your ex-wife is from Bulgaria, um, yeah. like you mentioned. And my wife's from Bulgaria, too. And uh, she used to talk about how—and still true, you know— um, She's from Plovdiv, which is the second largest city, that um, you simply release your kids out of the house, and there are many playgrounds there, and people play collectively. And I think you referred—you describe, I think it's uh, late Soviet housing, where kids were kind of—would run most freely between different apartments. And I don't know if that's still—that's kind of still true there, but I still sense that there's greater collectivity, kind of collectivity there than even in the most uh, traditional societies, communities here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the, the the there was a kind of collective effort in the neighborhood to 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 manage and take care of the children of the neighborhood. And um, you know, as those children grew older and became teenagers, they were sent off to what to us sounds horrible communist work camps, right? I mean, does that not sound horrible or what? But actually, the reality is that they were great fun, and the boys would li- you know the boys would live in one barracks and the girls would live in the other, and it was, of course, a lot of cross-pollination late at night, and they were away from their parents, and they worked during the day, and they led a kind of an ideal sort of collective life for the summer. And my former wife, Daniela, 
uh, you know, she grew up very poor in a very poor country. I mean, she said that some of her fondest memories are from that collective experience with other young people um, during those um, uh, those work camps. And you know, I you know, I should say that in Sarajevo, I mean, I was in Sarajevo during the siege, during the war. There was a lot of collective defense of the city. The the te- the children sheltered in in the basements of these buildings. Um, there were neighborhood militias uh, that defended the neighborhoods. Everyone was sort of thrown into the breach to keep the city from falling to the to the Bosnian Serbs who were shooting at everybody with tanks and sniper rifles and everything else. It was ghastly. And so later, you know, I went back to Sarajevo after the war, just a few years ago, and, and this is in my book, Tribe, but one woman I talked to who almost lost her leg during a bombardment. I mean, this woman, as a teenage girl, really paid the price for this war having happened. And and she said, despite all that, she said, you know, the war's over and it's so much better, et cetera, et cetera, but, but we all miss it. We miss the war. You know, they don't miss getting shot at. They don't miss all the horror and the death, of course, and starving and you know, everything else. I mean, a fifth of that city was killed and wounded during the war, imagine, as civilians, right? Um, what, they meant, what she said that they missed was that they were together, that everyone stuck together. And they felt more alive, maybe. Yeah, but they also alive and connected and, and, and like they were needed and that, they were, that people needed them. And, and there was a shared experience. And hu- when, when humans can share an experience with other humans, it feels meaningful and it feels good and, and, and life feels fulfilling, even if it's, that experience is extremely hard. There's graffiti in Bosnia that this woman told me about. Uh, there's graffiti in Bosnia that said on a wall that said things were better when they were bad. And that says something very, very profound about humans and about the kind of difficult circumstances that we undoubtedly evolved in as a species uh, that allowed us to survive and thrive and, and in some ways, ironically, thrive to the point where life feels a little bit less meaningful than it might if it were harder. So, Sebastian, I want to ask you, you're obviously very sensitized to the atomization that modern society is producing and so, for example, you mentioned you carry a flip phone rather than a smartphone. But on the other hand, you're a famous, world-famous writer and filmmaker, and your products can be beamed out to millions or even billions of people through all these advanced technologies. So how does it feel like to be both the nexus of all this and also uh, aware of all the shortcomings that come from these technologies? Well, I mean, everything has an upside and a downside. I mean, I drive a car. Right. I mean, I, the car is a, it's a miracle machine. I mean, and don't, and don't get me started on the airplane. Right. I mean, just a car. I mean, you can get into a car, push your foot down half an inch and you're zooming across the country. Right. It's magic. Right. But there's enormous costs to having a car into the environment, uh, to the way our cities are laid out and ultimately to the kind of communities that we can or can't form because we're so highly mobile. When you take the car away, the Amish in Pennsylvania, for example, when you take the car away, what you find in these communities is because people can only get as far as they can walk in a day away from their community. Because of that, you find much lower rates of suicide and depression. Is that worth, I mean, is, is having a car worth higher suicide rates? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. But the point is there's an upside and a downside to everything. Um, I just, I don't use a smartphone because I don't want to look like everyone else looks that's walking down the street looking at their stupid email. But, but you know, I, that's just, you know, that's just me. I feel like I, I lead a more pleasurable, meaningful life, being less distracted on the street. Um, but, you know, to each his own. You know, it's interesting. I remember reading an article about the Amish a few years ago, and the elders said that they can pretty much keep every sort of technology out from the community, but they can't stop the kids from having smartphones. 
it's really begin to erode. Wow. I mean, they were they were designed to be addictive, right? Addictive within one use. Uh, so much so that recently in the New York Times, it was an article about how Silicon Valley parents will not let their children have screen time or it's severely limited. Now, this is a product that they designed, right? And they designed it to be addictive. And addiction plays to very ancient human responses that were beneficial and healthful in a different environment. Um, but for us, uh, there's an enormous downside, which is this lack of human connectivity. I mean, people call it social media, but when you see a table full of people not relating to each, you know, at a restaurant, not relating to each other and staring at their laps, I'm sorry, that's not social behavior. It's antisocial behavior. And we know that antisociality anti is correlated with suicide and anxiety and depression and everything else. And it's exactly what you can see in the, the young generation in this country, like astronomical levels of psychological distress. Can I prove that it's because of social media and the iPhone? No, I can't prove it, but um, it's, a, it's, it's possible enough that they're connected that we should be concerned. I, I want to run something by you, Sebastian. So I was shocked to learn from my kids. My kids are 14 now. Uh, but when they were younger, I asked them, uh, I used to kid them sometimes and say, hey, was there a fight at school today? Did anything interesting happen? And my kids looked at me like I was crazy because apparently there are no fights in schools now that kids have been so... Uh, I don't want to say feminized or socialized, but the boys don't even fight. And they understand that if they fight, it's a huge deal. And uh, there'll be, you know, it's like a nuclear holocaust or something. And so my son claims he's never actually seen one kid punch another kid in the face, which to me is unbelievable because it seemed to happen like pretty much every day or every week uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where you live, and what kind of school it is, but I, you know, I, I think I'm going to say that there's plenty of schools and plenty of communities where there's plenty of fighting for better or worse. Like, I, I think that's a, that's not necessarily a, a, a universal in America right now. You know, Sebastian, I think we're almost at the end of time with you. It's um, this idea of a trade-off is something that's really struck me. I have, I actually have an unusual policy with my kids, which is I allow them to watch a limited amount of screens, but in foreign language. And so <laughs> that's great. I'm going to remember that. I have a two and a half year old. That's excellent. So my, my daughter is, um, and I, I speak French to her at home. I'm, I speak okay French, but she has acquired effectively a native quality French accent from YouTube. It's perfect. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Incredible that's comprehension. Um, and her grandmother, who's from Bulgaria, comes to visit uh, for six months a year. And her French comprehension is much better than Bulgarian comprehension. And, but it's an obvious trade-off, right? Because she spends a lot of time staring in front of the screen. But yet I'm trying to make her kind of a citizen of the world overall through this. And it's, it's an experiment, right? I'm kind of waiting to see what will happen. But it looks like at this stage, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a possibility in the future of her being able to travel quite widely uh, it, it, you know, throughout the society. And you know, I'm just curious. As to, I'd like to get your reaction to the experiment, right? Because... You know, you travel fairly widely. Most Americans don't. And I think it, it, it it's really limits our perspective on the world to some degree. Uh, absolutely. And listen, I, I mean, I'm all, I mean, look, the internet provides all of human knowledge to everybody almost instantaneously. I mean, I, I mean, if, the, if there's anything, if, if a human, a collective human consciousness is possible, it's the internet, right? So a very, very powerful thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that that's, it's, I'm, that that's bad. I'm just saying, look, I play an instrument, right? I don't have a teacher. I can go on YouTube and see other people play my instrument and learn from them, right? It's, it's a miracle, right? I'm just saying that along with every miracle comes the potential for a downside. And if you don't mitigate the downside, 
um, you were possibly endangering yourself, your society, young people. Um, this is all new, right? This is this is a whole new era, and and we have to be aware of the psychological consequences of all of these new inventions because some of them really could be quite damaging to people. I mean, they clearly are damaging to people. Well, Sebastian, I think our time's up with you. Thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you.